Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where our goal is to bring Asia to you through conversations with the people whose lives and work are shaping the Indo-Pacific. We were volunteering, teaching uh, the kids in the Refugee Learning Centre, and we realised a lot of kids were dropping out of education. Uh, we wanted to do something, but we had to tackle the livelihoods of the family first before we can tackle education. In Malaysia, uh, refugee adults are not allowed to work. Uh, that meant that it's very unstable on a day-to-day basis. But with Peter, they've been able to pay rent on time, make sure that you know their kids are well-fed, and most importantly, back to where and why we started this. It was education, is to make sure their kids get some form of education. I'm Rexon Yu, managing partner at the Asia Group. And I'm Sharon Anchor for Bloomberg News, Daybreak Asia and Daybreak Australia. Today, we are really pleased to be joined by Kim Lim, one of the three founders of the Malaysian social enterprise business, Picha Eats. Founded in 2016, Picha Eats is in the food industry and has partnered with 35 refugee chefs in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, purchasing their home-cooked meals and delivering them to individual customers and large events across the city. Picha Eats seeks to provide refugees whose home countries include Syria, Myanmar, and Afghanistan, among others, with stable income and support through the food sales. Picha Eats has delivered 350,000 meals since its founding and paid over 591,000 US dollars to its partner chefs. In 2018, Kim, Suzanne, and co-founder Lee Sui Lin were named to the Forbes 30 under 30 Asia list in recognition of their work. Kim, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Kim, maybe I'll just kick us off here a little bit and ask Mm -hmm. you, you know, you founded Picha Eats about five years ago as a social enterprise to, you know, as you describe it, to solve a problem that you observed in Malaysia and, but also do it in a way that, that tries to take advantage of some opportunity as well. Can you talk a little bit about the, the inspiration and motivation? Yeah, sure. Thanks, uh, Rexon, for uh, the question. Basically, myself, as how Sherry just shared, myself and my two other partners, uh, Suzanne and Suiling, we were actually university students when we started this little small project. Before this, it was called Hands of Hope Kitchen. But because Hands of Hope Kitchen was uh, too long, uh, we changed it to the Peacher Project. Well, it's, it sounds still quite long. <laughs> so in 2019, we actually rebranded to Picha Eats. And the whole idea was that we were volunteering in a refugee learning center eight years ago. And I was a musician before this whole social enterprise thing came into my life. And we were volunteering, teaching uh, the kids in the refugee learning center. And we realized a lot of kids were dropping out of education. Uh, we wanted to do something. But we had to tackle the livelihoods of the family first before we can tackle education. Um, Just because uh, in Malaysia, because we're not part of the 1951 UN Refugee Convention, that meant that uh, refugee adults are not allowed to work in Malaysia and they can only find like part-time jobs or contract uh, jobs to sustain their livelihood. And it's very unstable. You don't know when is your next meal on the table. Uh, so it's it's pretty hard to think about education at that point of time if your needs are not being served or uh, not being fulfilled. And so we thought that if 
people or the mothers in the refugee community can cook, why not we try and promote food that is homemade by refugees from wherever they come from with their authentic traditional recipe to Malaysians or people staying in Malaysia. And that started off with a very small project in the university. We just sold to our friends. We just tried them out. Uh, and then people were giving feedbacks. Uh, we were trying to improve our product, our packaging, the whole outlook of it. And we started selling them to corporates. And then after that, the corporates thought that we could do like buffet catering. And we started mm -hmm. venturing into that as mm. well. And that is where we are today. Uh, so the whole inspiration came from understanding the refugee issue that's happening in Malaysia. And also the name itself, Picha, has significance, right? Yeah, so the name Picha came from a young boy. Uh, at that time, he was three years old. Now he's eight years old and really quite big. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. And he was a very kind and very helpful soul. When we were preparing the food in the kitchen, uh, he's always, you know, he always come over and ask what can he help. Uh, to do and we thought we wanted this kind of spirit in into what we're doing on a daily basis he was a refugee yes he was a refugee from Myanmar mm -hmm. and uh, so we named it the Picha Project and then Picha Eats I, I'm curious you know you mentioned a little bit Kim about the, the very beginning and how you started give us an example or two what what did that look like when you started because it's not you don't employ the refugees, mm. as I understand it, there's a yep. relationship you have, you purchase the food yep. from the chefs, and then you sell it, and then you distribute yep. profits. But at the very yep. beginning, what was it like? Like, how did, how did the first few meals work? <laughs> I mean, the whole model has been the same uh, since we started. Uh, it's just the way we distribute uh, may be different, especially across the pandemic. But how we started was literally just getting friends to buy at the first place. We, it, I think it cost like six or seven ringgit at the time, which is probably like one or two US dollars. Mm -hmm. And then we didn't have any FMB background. So what we did is we just went online and learned about the cuisine and fine packaging and put them together. I remember my mom was there to actually teach uh, the Myanmar mm -hmm. lady a dish. Uh, we call her Ganu. Ganu in the Chin dialect of the Burma language, it meant mother. And so we just taught her the, the second dish. And uh, later on, we just kept you know teaching and helping and finding more other refugees that could be part of this uh, enterprise. So was the first chef from Myanmar? Yes. So food that was not entirely unfamiliar to Malaysians, right? Our first dish was turmeric chicken with rice and corn salad. It's quite familiar with uh, the Malaysian taste buds. Um, but later on, we ventured into the Middle Eastern food and um, many other food from different regions. So who are your customers? You started first selling to your friends. Now who's buying? Uh, we have been serving a lot of corporates uh, since 2016 to 2019. So corporates like uh, Google, Facebook, even insurance industry like Allianz, AIA, or Alliance Bank or Maybank or MBank that are local banks in Malaysia. Uh, so these are kind of our clients on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, since the pandemic, it has all shifted to much of a B2C a model. So average household who is looking to feed their families on an occasional basis or a daily basis, we have that kind of menu as well. 
tell us a little bit more about how the pandemic has affected you, especially because we have seen some of those food delivery platforms actually do pretty well uh, during the coronavirus pandemic with everybody ordering in. Was that your experience as well? Well, somewhat similar. So we from 2016 to 2019, we're pretty much a B2B business. So 70% of our revenue came from uh, businesses supporting what we're doing. But during the pandemic, businesses find it really hard to support because they were also figuring stuff out. And then we had to change our focus to B2C. And it's a lot of um, marketing games, social media game, and really grabbing the attention of a lot of consumers. At the same time, a lot of home chefs, suddenly like so many chefs can cook, so, so many people can cook and they were selling their products online as well. So we, we had like a huge pool of competition all of a sudden as well. And it, it's all about, you know, who could present their food better, whose photography is better, whose mm. pricing is better. And, and so it, it became difficult as well to compete with a lot of uh, such individuals or uh, small businesses or micro businesses but we, we're still trying uh, our best <laughs> today uh, we even pivoted to ready to heat meals which is a microwavable mm-hmm. meals uh, where people can subscribe to it on a monthly basis with three six nine meals the meals uh, delivered to their doorsteps at one go um, so we're, we're still thinking and innovating every day to see what we can cater to Malaysians or the public uh, so that we are sustainable in the long run and Kim, I'm curious. I mean, right now, as I understand it, you, you have about 35 chefs that, that offer food. How are you thinking about growth? I mean, what is, have you grown over the last couple of years or you know, during the pandemic? And, and what does that look like given the nature of your you know, relationship with the chefs and where they come from? Yeah, so we've partnered with 35 chefs in and out in the past uh, five years. This year, we've actually grown uh, a bit more in terms of structure and organize- and as an organization. Uh, when I talk about structure, it means how we train new upcoming mm-hmm. chefs. Uh, so this year we alone, we actually train up to 40 chefs. They may not on what we feature, they may, you know, find their own uh, opportunity outside. Um, but right now we're onboarding almost 10 more chefs. And so uh, the demand has grown uh, a bit more, but it's, it's still a gradual growth, mm. especially for an enterprise like us, where when you're competing with giants like Grab and Food Panda, where they have a lot of you know capital injected into their marketing and their logistics, we, mm-hmm. we are, we're really trying to grab a pie of the market there. But with the chefs coming from different countries, it gave us a different edge to it with the different um, authentic traditional recipe that you may not find them on Grab or Food Panda. Mm-hmm. And those have helped us to be more outstanding uh, in the food industry. Right. Yep. And of course, you have a social cause. Uh, there's yep. good reason behind what you do, right? So yep. Yep. tell us a little bit about those stories. I mean, all of these chefs coming from uh, all of these different countries, they're refugees from the likes of Myanmar, Syria, Afghanistan, Palestine, and so forth. Are there any stories that stand out for, uh, to you? There's so many stories across the year. Uh, we, we, uh, we have stories from people, you know, being really proud cooking for the frontliners during uh, the pandemic. Mm. Uh, like this Palestinian woman, she 
she said like she's really really proud that she could ac- actually contribute to the economy and at the same time to the society especially during these difficult times we do have chefs who actually come from war-torn countries and you can see their resilience in them which is much more which is very inspiring to uh, the team members that are working in Picha on a day-to-day basis one story that I can actually tell is a story of a, a man named his name is Muhammad Saazaza and he's from Syria he came all the way down to Malaysia with his family of three he was a very kind and dedicated chef he was kind of the pioneer chef uh, with Picha and uh, he, why he was kind is he's always cooking uh, more food than he needed to to security guards to drivers to people that he he didn't he see needs help around his area and he got uh, sick in 2017 uh, and he passed away in 2017 due to cancer but before he passed away he mentioned that he wanted to cook chicken mandi for people that are in need around the masjid area especially during the Ramadan months and um, because he couldn't fulfill his wish, we created a movement named the Zaza Movement just to get people to put in funds, enable refugees to cook and send those cooked food to people in need. So during this pandemic, we've sent quite amount, an amount of food to the frontliners or people who are starving, families who uh, really need to seek for such help. And just because of this man who inspired us and this man who we want the, his legacy to uh, continue on, uh, that more people could benefit from his kind heart and soul. Kim, and the model you have with the chefs in terms yep. of sharing profit, give us a sense of what that impact has been for the refugee families who have been involved with Picha Eats. Yep. As I mentioned, like in Malaysia, uh, refugee adults are not allowed to work. Uh, right. That meant that it's very unstable on a day-to-day basis. Sometimes it's very difficult to pay rent uh, consistently, uh, put food on the table. It's very hard and difficult for them to break it to their kids that tomorrow you may not eat. So it's it's sometimes very heartbreaking uh, to see such a situation. But with Peter, they've been able to pay rent on time make sure that you know their kids are well fed and most importantly back to where and why we started this it was education is to make sure their kids get some form of education so uh, when they are transiting in Malaysia and after they've resettled to places like US or Australia or Japan they can still continue their education and build their future so that is something that we have been advocating about and we've been trying to push so I think the most the, the the most rewarding part is when you see especially a mother who has never worked before build her confidence and capability or ability along the way. And the part where when these ladies are at depression mode and you can see when you start checking in with them online and they become so bright and um the the, the whole vibe of them just changed that i think that's the most rewarding part for the team members when they see it does not just uh serve their livelihood but also their psychological well-being and the confidence that they have uh in them and and that's what we've been advocating about and that's what picha is all about what are the challenges that you face day to day though <laughs> there's so many in different aspects um 
I mean, when we started, our challenge was more of a business challenge. Like the three of us had no business background. So we had to learn and pump in knowledge to our brains like really, really, really quick. Uh, experiment, fail, do mistakes and, and rise up again. After that, we faced like operational challenges uh, because we weren't that experienced. So we had to talk to mentors, you know, read, read from the books and learn from the mistakes and keep doing it and doing it again. And then after that, some community challenges where some people are just, are, they, they just couldn't stand up themselves and they need like someone there. And sometimes just being there is enough for them to um, drive them and give them the energy to uh, stand up for themselves again. And so the challenges ranges from different uh, aspects on a day-to-day basis, even up to managing team members' morale, motivation, the partners' discussion, probably logistics issues. So uh, it's all different, different aspects in our everyday lives. Kim, can I pick up on something you just said there? And I'm, I'm yeah. just curious, you, you know, at the scale you're at now, you've got a, a you know, over, th- over three dozen chefs that are potentially active any given day. Yeah. Um, wh- what are the partnerships that you have in KL on the logistics, on the practical dimension of moving food from home kitchen, right, <laughs> to customer? H- how does that happen? Yep. So currently we have uh, approximately like 20 active kitchens, uh, which we can actually serve you know, customers all around Klang Valley. We actually have our own logistics fleet, means that we could actually mobile people around to pick up the food and deliver the food or deliver packagings to the, the chefs. Um, but at the same time, we try and work with a different delivery platform like Bungus Eat or Lala Move. It's, it's very local or Southeast Asian based uh, delivery platform. So um, it's a hybrid. Uh, we're working to lower our costs and at the same time, maintain quality to our customers uh, because you want to make sure that the food delivers to the customer is in well shaped, that they can still enjoy the presentation all the way to its taste. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's something that we've been striving for in terms of our service since the past uh, five years. And look, I, lo- I love to eat, Kim. So I, I really I have <laughs> to ask, what, what have been some of the most popular dishes over the years and dishes that you might have been surprised that have seen success with Malaysian yeah. consumers? I, I wish you're here, Rexon, so <laughs> <laughs> you can try it uh, yourself. But we do have a lot of uh, amazing dishes coming out from those kitchens. Uh, we have like chicken mandi from the Palestinian kitchen. We have biryani from Pakistan. And those yeah. biryani are really authentic cooking. And then we have like charcoal smoked chicken. Uh, we have like, you know, stuffed eggplant, uh, stuffed with lamb, minced lamb. And there's so many. I, I can't. You're even just making us hungry <laughs> right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we have a very wide range of menus since we started, right? Yeah. Uh, to, to, to date. When it comes to social enterprises, how much support is there from the Malaysian government towards you, towards other enterprises? What else would you like to see? Uh, see actually, we pretty much started from uh, an accelerator program designed by the government, MAGIC, 
Malaysia Global Innovative and Creativity Center. And the support we got from there was tremendous that actually helped us to accelerate our growth in just three months while we were seeing profits and uh, we graduated with a, a, a small grant. Then after uh, the government uh, or mainly magic has been trying to, I mean, create magic for us to make sure that we have a sustainable growth uh, path and make sure we have the support that we need. I must say, I must say the government can definitely do more in supporting social enterprises, especially during this time where more social entrepreneurs are needed uh, to, to curb the social issues that is happening in our country. In terms of uh, network, in terms of getting private sector to procure from us, in terms of uh, funding, in terms of the professional uh, programs that will help the founders or entrepreneurs to upskill or, or to see scalability. I, I must say the, the landscape of social enterprises in Malaysia and Singapore is pretty different. The way how Singapore uh, runs it is very much, uh, they're, they're, they're pretty a lot of funders and networks that are looking into uh, Singapore. And I wish that we had that in Malaysia as well so that we can see more growth and you know more expansion. Uh, so that's what I, I, I pretty wished that it would happen. On the refugee side, yep. you know, Kim, I have a, a on a personal note, I, I have an affinity and, and, and deeper knowledge on refugees. Uh, my wife has worked in this area for over 20 years on, in mm -hmm. the U.S., have you seen a lot of growth in the refugee population? What does it look like? And, you know, as we watch the news in Afghanistan, do you, would you think that you'll see a surge in Afghan refugees to Malaysia? Well, when we started in 2016, we're, we've been doing a lot of sharings and we always start off with there are 130,000 registered refugees in Malaysia. And in 2021, when I start off my sharing, it goes there are 180,000 registered refugees in Malaysia. So the numbers are increasing year by year. People coming down from Myanmar just because persecution is still happening there. People coming from maybe like Afghanistan or Iraq. I don't think there's much coming from Syria anymore because I think Syria's war has subsided a bit. But there are other places, uh, civil war is still happening and people are still trying to escape from being endangered. And Malaysia somehow became a port where people seek refuge from and United Nations is here. So uh, I do see more amount of people trying to come into Malaysia in the future. You mentioned one of the challenges that refugees face is the job insecurity. What else would you like to see the government do as well as corporations and just the people in Malaysia to help ease some of these challenges? I mean, I wish that the government would consider a much humane policy uh, for the people that they allow them to come in. Uh, I mean, we, we, it's not that we do not invite refugees. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that refugees are already in Malaysia and, and we can't just not help them. And if we don't, then there'll be a lot more other problems that will arise in the future. And I hope that uh, a humane policy meant that they are at least allowed to work or gain sustainable livelihood until they get resettled. 
and we are still able to help assimilate them into our society, whether it's in Malaysia or to wherever they're going to. Next, I see a lot of discrimination happening in my country as well, from the locals to foreigners, just because people are quite confused with illegal immigrants to legal immigrants and uh, refugees. So people are really confused with this whole concept. I, I wish that more education could be restored to help people to be well informed what is the uh, main issue right here and I think a lot of people think that refugees come to Malaysia for economical reasons so we've been trying to advocate and educate uh, the public that you know refugees are not here for economical reasons they they are here for safety reasons and if given the chance they would and really would love to go back to where their where the country is uh, to rebuild and uh, to re be reunited with their families. Uh, so some of them are actually separated from their families, whether it's their parents or their brothers or their sisters. And I know most of them would want to be reunited with them. So I, I wish we are much more mm, welcoming and open to foreigners into our country because that will only help us to boost economy. It will help us in different capabilities and skill sets that we don't have. I've known refugees who were doctors, who were architects, who were accountants before, uh, teachers, psychiatrists, and they couldn't practice what they've learned here uh, in Malaysia. And with 10 years being in Malaysia, 10 to 15 years, not being able to practice what you've studied or your uh, uh, specialization, you simply forget your skill set and you sometimes forget who you are. And it's pretty detrimental to an individual to actually forget who you truly are or what you can actually do with your life. Um, I've known a refugee who is really, really devastated with not knowing who he is anymore. And it's a theft of identity. And I think uh, we should, you know, work towards restoring those things. But it's not just about them, right? It's also about taking away from what could be actually adding to Malaysia, the, the skill set, adding to the Malaysian economy as well. Yep. Just tell us a little bit how you decided to transition from something that was sort of a of a side gig something that you did in college to an actual business in just a few years time yep um so i studied music in university and i my dream was to become a musician you know playing around the world on on stages but i think i also have a burning passion to help people since young along with my partners as well and I see this opportunity really quick. I grew up in a family business as well, picked up some business acumen here and there. And I thought that, you know, it's if, if this is going faster than my music career and it's really fulfilling and rewarding on a day-to-day day -day basis, then um, let's just go with it and see where it brings us to. Uh, and I think for the past five and a half years, it has been very, very rewarding and very empowering to myself as well uh, because I'm being, I, I'm being inspired by the people that I meet on a day-to-day -day basis and, and working with them. Kim, it is inspirational to learn about what you and your two partners have built over the last six years and to get a sense of the impact you've had 
among a population, as you've so eloquently described, often in greatest need given their circumstances, uh, whether it's in Malaysia or almost anywhere else uh, in the world. So thank you for sharing that with us and thank you for joining us today. It really illustrates the power of vision and the impact that clearly you're having in Kuala Lumpur and in Malaysia. Uh, wish you all the best. Yep, I must thank you, Rexon and Sherry, for um, shedding light into what we're doing in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. <laughs> thank you, Kim. Thank you so much. Thank you to our listeners as well. Please be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also access the full video of our conversation at theasiagroup.com. We'll see you next time on Tea Leaves. <laughs>